The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, you open to Luke chapter 14. And speaking of being invited, Luke chapter 14, which we don't have time to get into the whole chapter. It's a very long chapter. It really breaks into two sections. The first is a story about Jesus being invited to dinner. I don't know uh, how you guys feel, but there's this thing that happens in my heart and mind whenever I'm invited to something. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is I ask myself, is that something that I want to do? Do you guys do that? We don't have to talk about it with the people that invited you over at all. Never bring it up. But it's the first thing that happens. Someone invites you, you get the text message or you get the save the date or a phone call, email, evite. I don't even know all the ways you can be invited. And that feeling comes across you of, I am looking forward to that. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I want to be there. Or one more thing. Oh, but they went to my thing. Now, you know this struggle we have when it comes to being invited to something. One of the things I love about Jesus is he never once turned down an invitation. You find Jesus in the gospels eating with the Pharisees, the people of power, position, and purity, and also with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. He really had a, a bad reputation because who, who he chose to associate and eat with, and it's because he never once turned down an invitation. But Jesus also offered a universal invitation to every single people group, no matter where he went, and through his word offers an invitation to come to him and to be a part of what he is doing in the earth every single time his word is preached, every single time a witness of Jesus opens their mouth, every single time a meal is shared, communion is taken, there is an invitation. And if you're here this morning, your invitation to church was not the the real invitation. It was the prequel. And the real invitation is what you are going to hear from the resurrected and rightful ruler of the world, Jesus the Christ. And when you understand what it is you are being invited into, you will, you will have come over you a rush of excitement, overwhelming anticipation, and an eager desire to move anything off the calendar and to spare no expense to participate in what you are being invited to this morning. And so I'm so excited. I'm so excited. In the first half of Luke 14, uh, Jesus has this interaction where he's invited to dinner and he, he starts m- making observations and criticizing his guests. And uh, it's really tense. Um, he's, he notices how these, these uh, very wealthy and well-to-do people come to the, the ruler of the synagogue's house, the Pharisees, and they all start kind of vying for position by taking the, the seats of honor around the table. And Jesus is watching this take place. Now, he, being the guest of honor, likely was given the seat of honor. And so everybody else was kind of filling in the second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, and filling up from the highest honor to the place of lowest honor. And Jesus observed this happening. And so he just calls it out. He's like, I couldn't help but notice everybody just deciding to make yourself something special. Can we talk about that? No, wasn't planning to talk about that. Now, of course, this was a trap for Jesus. The opening verses of Luke 14, if you've read it before, they not only invite Jesus and all of their uh, upper crust friends, but a man with dropsy is also invited. What you wouldn't know is this is a guy with uh, edema. So he's got swollen, maybe like water fluid filled legs and extremities, hard time breathing, moves very slowly. And that particular form of disease was considered connected to sexual immorality and was seen as a judgment from God. And so this was not a well-honored man. He was there for a reason. And the reason was to trip up Jesus. 
this dinner took place on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus breaking some of their rules about protecting the Sabbath, one of which was working or healing. And so you didn't, you didn't heal on the Sabbath. If you could do it tomorrow, Jesus. But they knew Jesus was compassionate and compelled by people suffering. And so they set this whole thing up and they bring Jesus in. And, and he looks at this man with the compassion he feels towards every human in his suffering. And he looks at his guests and he asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, all these guys who are there to trick him and trap him, they say nothing. That's what I love about religious people. <laughs> you put them on the spot and they're like, mm, not me, not today. They say nothing. And so he, it's, it's funny, Luke in, four, in the verse, couple of verses of chapter 14, he just says, and Jesus healed him and sent him away. And that's like the, mo- the second most compassionate thing Jesus could have done for this man after healing his body is getting him out of this dinner party, okay? He's like, you can go now. Oh, thank you, Jesus, I'm out. But then Jesus starts to engage with these guys to show them uh, their arrogance and their hierarchy and how they value people based on what they can do for them. And, and Jesus starts to tell these stories about what it means to invite people into God's presence, who God cares about, what God wants. And, um, and Jesus just goes after him again and again and again. And midway through the chapter, somebody there goes, oh, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of heaven trying to break that awkward tension, you know? Like, can we find a topic we're all excited to hear about? And, uh, and then Jesus tells a story, tells a parable. And he tells a parable about these honored guests who are invited to a party and how the day of the party comes and he sends his servant to say, now's the time. You know, they didn't have text messages and emails and Google calendars. And so if you're gonna be invited to a wedding, you would first send everybody, hey, you're, you are invited to guest to this event and I will send word when the time has come. And so you would go, wow, I'm really honored to be a part of this. And then that second invite would show up and be like, this weekend, this is it. You got 24 hours, tomorrow's the party. And then he says in his story, all these guys start making these dumb excuses. Oh, I went and I bought a field and I have to go inspect it. I can't go, I'm sorry. I bought 10 yoke of oxen, which is like buying a fleet of semi-trucks. So this is a wealthy person. And I have to go see them, which is laughable because nobody with that kind of money would make an investment without seeing what they were buying. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? And we know that it's humorous because the third thing he says is, I have taken a wife and so I can't go. <laughs> and everyone would have laughed the same way you just did. And then, and then the man in the story sends out his servant. He says, go, go get all the, the people uh, who are poor and, and broken down and hurting and bring them, invite them. And they said, okay, master, we've done that and there's still room. And he says, now I want you to go into the highways and byways and hedges. Talking about the homeless people, the foreigners, those destitute outside of the realm of even touchable and bring them in. And he says, there's still room in this, for this banquet. And those who had the original invite who made those dumb excuses, who cared about things other than this banquet, they, would, they will not have a place at the table. And this was a stark confrontation and judgment against these religious leaders in the first century. It was really, really powerful, that first half of the chapter. But the second half of the chapter, great crowds come to Jesus, obviously because of his compassion, his power, his authority, his ability to heal. Great crowds come to him and he starts to offer an invitation to be a disciple of his. And then he begins to describe what that looks like. And what that looks like should send everyone packing. No thank you, not interested, unless you have an understanding of who Jesus is and what it is that you are being truly invited into. And this sets up the third part of our DNA series, which we've been in, that talks about what is at the core of 
Christ Church? What makes us us? What does it take for us to be duplicated or replicated? And so there are four components of our DNA, and we are now in week three of those four parts. We started the series with our story and some of our values, but now we're in week three where I want to talk to you about our mission statement, which, which circles around and the word disciple, which is on the wall to my right and to your left. And this is what Jesus is inviting every person into to become a disciple of his. Now, I, I've, I've heard this feedback from several people when they look at this sign, they go, I see four words on that sign, which I know, and I don't know what that means. Disciples, be, become, and make. That's a graphic abbreviation of our mission statement, which is a whole sentence, although a redundant one. Christ church exists to be and become disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. If you grew up in church at all, you know churches have a mission statement. You know, many times those mission statements sound something like that. They have something to do with making disciples or going into all the world or being on mission. And so this is the way we say it, but we've, we've crafted this abbreviation and also this sentence with its redundancy to keep us focused on what it is that we're trying to do here. And that is to be disciples of Jesus, what he says the disciple is, to create an environment where people can make movement toward Jesus. We talked about that in week one, where people can, can come in and at various stages of maturity and interest and belief and behavior, they can make movement towards Jesus and be one of those people in position to hear the invitation to be a part of what God is doing through Jesus and the earth, to become a disciple. And then we want to be like Jesus, sent ambassadors, proactive, not just in making converts or inviting people to say a prayer or to join a team or to put on a t-shirt or to go to heaven when they die, but to join us in discipleship, in following Jesus, in learning what he has commanded and observing those things, knowing that he is with us to the end of the age, Matthew 28. This is what we're trying to get done here. This is the third part of our, our DNA. Now, I've been using this or harnessing this idea of DNA for this series, and I like it because it's very complex. Your, your DNA in your body is unique, although you share it with 99.9% .9 of every other human on the planet, but your DNA is sequenced in such a way that you are the result. With three billion bases in a particular order, all fashioned by your lineage to make you you. Isn't that incredible? Three billion of four letters in a particular series makes you you. You start changing the series and you become someone else. Think about how immense this is for just a second. If you were to type 60 words per minute for eight hours a day, how long would it take you to sequence your own genome? Anybody have an idea? Shout it out. What do you think? A year? A long time? A decade? It would take you 50 years just to figure yourself out. Some of you are like, that's what I'm trying to do right now. That's what it feels like. I'm just working on trying to figure this out. And imagine if you make a couple typing errors. I mean, you don't even have to type well. You don't have to do Mavis Beacon or anything. You just can, it's only four keys, you know? But eight hours a day, 60 words a minute would take you 50 years to sequence your own genome. And so in there is complexity, but there's also simplicity. And so we are kind of laying out these four components of what it is that makes us us. And if we're going to multiply, and if we're going to multiply and replicate and continue to grow as a church and as a church planting church, well, this is what we're trying to duplicate. And so maybe you've been coming to Christ Church for a little while. You like what's here. You have some friends that are here. You're getting involved. We want you to know exactly what it is we're trying to get done and how, and that's what this series is about. And so I want to talk about this word disciple. Now, there's a lot of different terms that we use to talk about 
followers of Jesus or Christians, disciple may be one of them, but I really like this word because it has stood the test of, of time. Uh, the word Christian, we do find a version of it in the New Testament, but it began as a pejorative. It was, an, it was a bad name that, that people who were not Christians started calling Christians, and it just means little Christs. And it became the name that stuck. And so most people who have faith in Jesus or evangelical or Catholic, they would identify as a Christian. So raise your hand if you've said, I am a Christian. Raise your hand. Yes, all, almost all of you. So, some people would go so far as to use that term to mean, I am neither Muslim nor Jewish nor an atheist, so I am a Christian. Or I was born in Texas, you know, uh, Tennessee. My parents were Baptists, so I am a Christian. And so this word has lost almost all meaning. And what happens is, you take these terms that we use to mean something and they lose their meaning and then we start modifying them. And so you hear people say that uh, they're a born again Christian or they're a spirit filled Christian. We talk about other people as a nominal Christian. Nobody ever says that about themselves. A Christian in name only. What does that even mean? It means that this word has lost so much of its substance that it is almost meaningless. And so we abandon the word Christian in our mission statement and we go back to the word that Jesus used and he used it in many places, but Luke 14, Disciple, disciple. Webster's 1828 dictionary, which was the first edition of the Webster's dictionary, and it was actually intended to help readers of the Bible know the meaning of the words in the Bible. Did you know that? That's where the Webster's dictionary originated. And in the 1828 edition, Noah Webster describes a disciple as a learner, a scholar, one who receives or professes to receive instruction from another a follower and adherent to the doctrines of another. Another, And Jesus employs this term in relationship to himself all throughout the gospels, my disciples, a disciple of me. Come follow me, be my disciples. And so unfortunately, there, this, this uh, lack of meaning in the word Christian and also an approach to evangelism and conversion that puts all the emphasis on the moment of conversion and the decision to become a Jesus follower sometimes leads us to a place where we've stopped asking the question of what does this mean for the rest of my life? And so you can be in a meeting, you can feel convicted, you can be in a place of desperation, you can even believe the reality of the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus died for you on the cross so that you can be forgiven, that he was victorious over death in the grave, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit in the church. All those things, you can think those things to be true and you can come to a point in time where you go, okay, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna be a Christian. I wanna put my faith in Jesus and you, you pray a prayer, but sometimes it turns into little more than iTunes wants to do an update and you scroll through all of the stuff that it says. And at the bottom, it says, I have read the terms and service agreements. You ever do that? Has anyone here actually read all of the iTunes? service agreements, but you clicked that button, didn't you? And now they have all your data. Sometimes we do that with our followership of Jesus as well. And so I want to talk to you about what it means for us to be and become disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus. Now, it's not a surprise to me that we've come to this. It's not a surprise to me that people are willing to go, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, because the benefits of belonging to Jesus are staggering when you really understand what they are. I mean, the forgiveness of sins, 
the wholeness that he brings, the blessing that comes on your life, the peace, the joy, the love instantly infused to you, the work of the Holy Spirit, being a part of a family, having, having your life transformed as you obey him and do things that don't make sense by the world's wisdom, but make your life better and better and better and better. There's all these reasons why there's a benefit to us, but we have to be careful in the 21st century in America because we tend to make all of our decisions as consumers and not disciples. Do you know this? And so we, we start, whether we even realize it or not, with a question of how do I feel about this and what's in it for me? And I am not immune to this either. I mean, there's a reason I will drive past Winn-Dixie to go to Publix. They have tomatoes too. They're closer and probably cheaper. Not a pleasure. <laughs> there's a reason you will not gas up at a Sitco station. You will go to the Wawa. Do you realize this? We, we, without thinking, we make decisions based on how do I feel about this and what is in it for me? We can't help it. It's the air we all breathe. And so we have to be even more proactive than ever to keep this definition of the word disciple in front of us and to know what it is we're signing up for and what it is we're seeking to engage in. And you already faced that this morning. I mean, some people, if you, if you came here from say Riverwood Plantation or Parkwood Mobile Home Park and you drove down Spruce Creek to Christ Church, you drove past 12 churches before you turned right onto Mocha Farms Road. And then when you got to us, you literally had two options directly across the street from each other. <laughs> if you were to have turned left, you'd have to choose between the Kingdom Hall and the Cabbage Patch. <laughs> and if you were to have asked me for a recommendation, <laughs> I would tell you who has better draft beer. That's, that's how this would go. And so we have options. We have options. Now you will find churches whose music is more your style, whose volume is more your speed, the temperature is more comfortable. I don't think you'll find one where the seats are more comfortable. We've pretty much got the market cornered. Coffee and donuts, I mean, I get it. So we're playing into this in the experience. And so I'm just admitting that right up front. I'm not trying to hide that from you. We're trying to make this as a pleasant environment as possible. We're trying to serve your children, care for them, teach them about the Lord. We're trying to help people engage to give their lives away in community and service. And so we're really proactive in, in, in creating a church environment that's very inviting and appealing, but that is not what you're saying yes to when you respond to the invitation to follow Jesus. Do you know that? And so we've got to work really hard to understand, especially in this consumer era, what it means to follow Jesus. And so I want to walk us through the second half of Luke 14 to look at these three elements of what it means to be truly a disciple of Jesus. Number one, being a disciple of Jesus requires reordering my priorities. Can you guys say that with me? Reordering my priorities. Priorities. And I left it my, not your, because we are in this together and I'm speaking as one of us, reordering my priorities. Luke 14, 25, after Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees at dinner and then responded to this invitation and healed this man and called out their arrogance, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus must have been facing a third service because this is the great crowd thinner sermon right here. He's like, I got a big crowd. People in the back can't. He's like, I'm gonna take care of this right now. Uh, you, wanna, you wanna be a disciple of mine? You gotta hate your mom. 
just like that. Now, what is he talking about there? I know for us that the idea of hate comes with a strong emotional repulsion. And we use the word hate in that way. In fact, if you're like me and you have young kids, we don't let them say hate. You know what I'm saying? Like there's words that they shouldn't say that we give them a pass on. Hate is not one of them because there's very, very few things we should have this type of disposition to and use the word hate. Now, the Bible uses the word hate in a couple different ways and it does use the word hate in the way I'm talking about and the way that word hits us at first. Consider Proverbs chapter six. There are six things that the Lord hates, verse 16. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. And I've seen those things happen in church. God says he hates those things. And he's talking about an emotional disdain, a physical repulsion, a disgust, complete opposition. And that was one way you could read the word hate in the Bible, but there's also another way that it's used. And that has to do with everything. It has to do with our priorities. Perhaps you're familiar with God in Malachi chapter one and verse two, and then again in Romans nine saying, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Do you guys remember this? Now, if you read that and thought God loved Jacob and when he saw him, he smiled and God looked at Esau and was like, I hate that guy. I don't wish he was dead. I just wish he was missing an arm or something. You know, if that's like the way you read it, you read it wrong because God loved Esau and God blessed Esau and God was patient and caring with Esau and God restored Jacob and Esau and Esau was right there in the family of God. But God showed a preference to Jacob. And it's the reason we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, because God chose to prefer the younger son over the older one. He made a decision based on priority. And that's what that passage is about. And so that's applied to God's choosing of us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's choice, but that's the way this is used. Jesus used this in Matthew chapter six and verse 24. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He uses the same terminology of love and hate, devotion or despising. You cannot serve God and money. Now, money in the scripture is just amoral. Money is just money. There's nothing moral about money. You can have lots of money. You can have no money. None of those things have anything to do with your heart or doing right or wrong. Money is just an object. But you cannot serve money and claim to serve God because God will regularly just tell you to give your money away. He does. He does it all the time. He tells you to do it cyclically and regularly just to put to death your sense of self-sufficiency and to put your trust in him through the tithe and regular offerings and first fruits and generosity. He wants us to do that. So we go, hey, you're God, you're the source of all things. And so I'm gonna take a big chunk of what you've just entrusted to my care. I'm gonna push it back in your direction as a reminder, as a statement of faith and in obedience to you. This is what God calls us to do all the time, but he won't even stop there. I mean, this past year, we were already doing that. And God led our church into this season, this One Life Initiative, so that we could start putting money together to expand and make a larger adult sanctuary. And you guys look around, it's January, we're filling up. Last week, we had record attendance for the year. It's only three weeks in. But it was also record attendance more above last year. And the first time we've ever had more than 50% online versus on site. And so when everybody shows up, we're in trouble. And so God moved us to say, you got to get ready. You can't just have three and four and five and six services in this place. We got to start working towards something that's sustainable and helps us to fulfill our mission. And we had 
147 families commit to thousands, some tens of thousands of dollars. And while we had no millionaire class at Christ Church and nobody stroked a seven digit or even a six digit check, all of us did what we could. And now we are almost halfway through this initiative and these commitments and we have plans underway. And it's because of that generosity that we're able to, 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 to be building right now. We're, we're gonna have a sign on the property very soon under construction. We've got plans that have gone to an architecture right now. I can't wait to show them to you in a couple of weeks and we celebrate the halfway point of our giving initiative. But God put it in our hearts to go above and beyond. It was scary. Last, last February for Tiffany and I, we're talking about how much money we wanted to give. It was a staggering amount for us. But we felt like God was calling us to do it. And so we, we go all in and we trust God. But listen, if we're serving money, then we would never do that. We would go, I'm working to get that money so I can keep it. I want to have it. It makes me feel safe and secure. I want to know that I have enough for, for this and enough for that. You, don't, you can't serve God in money. And so what do you have to do? Love one, hate the other. Be devoted to one, despise the other. And this is what Jesus is saying. Now in the ancient Near East, it's a little different. They were a collectivist society. And so the people who were Jesus' hearers, their first allegiance would have been not to themselves, but to their family. So for us as Americans, we are rugged individualists. Our, our parents, I mean, I remember being 15 and being like, I feel like I don't need to wait till 18, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Thanks for all the food and shelter, mom and dad, and the love, I'm out. I mean, that's, that's the sense of loyalty I had to my own family. Uh, and, and I think a lot of us make our decisions based on that, what's in it for me, or my, myself, my spouse, my children, but there's no allegiance to to family the way there was in the ancient Near East. And so when Jesus stands up and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saying you have to, you know, it's Mother's Day. Dear mom, I hate you. I'm a Christian now, I hate you. <laughs> Jesus told me to hate you forever. Tell dad I said hi. You know what I mean? I don't, this, is not the, this is not the picture. The picture is you no longer make decisions based on what mom and dad want. You make your decisions based on what Jesus says. Do you see that? And so it's about reordering your priorities. Jesus extends the analogy further beyond family to self and government with the phrase, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, we read that and we think Jesus died on a cross. Following Jesus is like going to put yourself to death like Jesus did. And that's what our, it's my cross to bear. We even, but that, I mean, think that, that hadn't happened yet in the story. Jesus was saying, you know how Rome says you must pay allegiance to Caesar or we will crucify you? Well, I'm calling you to do the same thing to me. To me that you're gonna essentially put yourself on trial, convict yourself of cosmic treason and crucify every one of your own desires so that you can be a true subject of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, it's not about your family getting a call. I mean, you remember when Jesus has these interactions with people and one of them, one of, there's a young man that comes to him and says, I wanna follow you, Jesus. First, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me now. You ever read that and you go like, can you go to the funeral? Come on, Jesus, what kind of jerk are you? He, dad wasn't dead. The son was saying, out of allegiance to my father, I'm going to remain in my father's house until he dies. And then once he is dead, I am not gonna disrespect him by leaving the family. And once he's gone, then I'm gonna follow you. And Jesus says, it doesn't work like that. Dad doesn't get to make all the decisions for your life anymore. If you're gonna be my disciple, I become the one who orders your priorities. And so we have to recognize this. this is a big task. When we say that we exist to be and become disciples of Jesus who are making disciples of Jesus, this is what it means to be a disciple. It means your priorities come from him and not from you. They come from him and not your employer. They come from him and not your family. 
They come from him and not your every waking impulse, appetite, or desire. And so what does it look like to have Jesus dictating your priorities? So we reorder our priorities as a disciple of Jesus. Secondly, we reallocate our possessions. Reallocating my possessions. I dabbled in this a little bit. If you were uncomfortable, buckle up. Because <laughs> here we go. Reallocating my possessions. Look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. One of two analogies Jesus used to talk about the reallocating of your possessions. Now this, I know you read this and you go, I haven't built a tower in a while, not something that I would consider. I don't understand how this works, but you know exactly how this works. You know, when I told people we were, we were building, we were adding on, everyone says, we need a bigger church. And they say the same thing. What about that abandoned building on the corner of Williamson and Madeline? How many of you guys had that thought, right? How many of you thought like they built this thing halfway, there's trees growing up through it. What about that building? It's exactly the same thing. What, everyone asked the story, what is the deal with that building? Well, somebody started building it and ran into a hiccup and couldn't finish it. And it, it, it stands as a, a picture, an illustration of the very thing Jesus is talking about. If not that, how about the I-4 eyesore, which finally is looking finished, mostly because there's other people building things around it so you can't see that it's still undone. How many years are we talking about? Jesus says, are you willing to go all in? Don't start something you aren't committed to finishing. Don't you wish more people were this way? Don't you think this would alter our perspective and our commitments in marriage? I mean, your, your car salesman doesn't even care if you can make the payments. He cares if you can get your credit report to pass, sign on the dotted line, and write a check for one dime, right? <laughs> Nobody cares if you can see this through to completion, but Jesus does. He says, I don't want half-hearted disciples, and I don't want disciples that quit when they get to the point where they go, I didn't realize it was going to cost me this much. Jesus says, I want everything. And that means you are, as a follower of Jesus, saying my things no longer belong to me, they belong to you. I am no longer an owner, I am a steward. Now, this is really awesome if you're dead broke. I don't know how many times when I was a young Christian, I was praying, I'm like, God, your truck payment is gonna be late. You know? <laughs> this is not my truck, this is God's truck. I would not have this truck, and it is devoted to your purposes but it is gonna impact our credit score, God, if you don't show up right now. It's easy for us to bring our liabilities to God, but it becomes hard for us when we're also bringing our assets. Do you realize this? And so discipleship, following Jesus, means that we reallocate all our possessions based on having reordered our priorities. Jesus uses another illustration. I mean, I use this, it's funny. I have a, I always, I've almost always had a pickup truck. There was a little stint there where I had a 1987 Camry. Um, it did have air conditioning and five seatbelts and I had two kids in car seats and it was hot. And so I went for a little while in the old Camry, but I've always wanted to have a pickup truck. I, I told you guys a story about um, buying a Mustang. I had a Mustang GT. I did sell it. I know that comes as a shock to some of you guys. Oh, it was not, don't feel bad for me. Uh, it was a very, very uh, easy decision. Uh, but, I, but I sold it and I was thinking, okay, if it's an old truck, it needs a bunch of work, it needs the roof repainted, it's rusting out. So I'm either, I'm just gonna sell both and I'm gonna go get a new truck. 
So I sold the Mustang, got everything out of it that I put into it, did great, it was awesome. And then I went to trade my truck in and I didn't realize how expensive used cars had gotten in the last 12 months. And my truck was worth almost nothing and the truck that I wanted, $50,000. I could not believe what I was looking at. I went back to my truck and I was like, I love this truck. All of a sudden, the newfound love for this old truck, I'm gonna get this thing fixed, I'm gonna take care of it now. You know, like something happens, but I remember looking there and saying, you can have this truck 10% down at 60 months with this interest rate, $700 a month, can you afford that? And I looked at how much money I gave away last year and I thought, I see where I could. Lord, do you want us to have a new truck? You know, like that's the, you ask these questions, where's it gonna be? But the reality is, is that those are not my decisions to make. Ultimately, those are his decisions to make, right? So I'm getting my truck fixed and I'm having a grateful heart for a vehicle that is paid for. Praise him. He takes this analogy from building a tower to waging a war, maybe something that we're even less familiar with, verse 31. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first to deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. The question is, do I have what it takes and am I willing to go all in? You're making a calculated decision. What is this gonna cost me? And Jesus is not looking for iTunes box clicks. He is looking for people who know what he is saying to say yes to the dress. He's very upfront. And he uses these announces. He says in verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, all that belongs to him cannot be my disciple. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that your stuff stands against you and wants to rule over you? And our call as disciples is to renounce our stuff, to relinquish control of everything over to Jesus. This is why Jesus said it's so hard for the rich to inherit eternal life. I don't have time to get into this whole thing. I, I thought I might if I talked fast enough and I've been doing a good job talking fast. But later on in Luke 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has this conversation. Why do you call me good? He says, you know, he's talking about the morality. He believes he deserves eternal life because he's been a good person. They have a conversation about keeping laws. And he says, I've done all these things for my youth. And he goes, oh, I love that Jesus says this. He goes, you still lack one thing. Wait, I have righteousness from the law. I have prosperity. I'm in a position of power. I have everything. And I'm coming to you asking, how do I inherit something I can't earn, something I can't get has to come to me from someone else. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. And I'm sure this guy's thinking, what? What do I lack? And what does Jesus say? He said, see, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Give it all away. Now, is this what Jesus wants everyone to do? No, but Jesus knew what was, the wrong, what was wrong in this guy's heart. So he wanted to bring in the ownership of all of his stuff into his followership of Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 that's my stuff now. And I'm gonna tell you what to do with it. Give it to the poor. Well, what was his response? When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it, said, then who can be saved? If the rich and the powerful and the blessed and the faithful and the obedient can't enter the kingdom, what hope is there for the rest of us? Jesus says, well, good news. With 
What's impossible with man is possible with God because God does a miracle in our hearts to say, you know what? All this stuff, like the Apostle Paul, it's rubbish to me now. It's rubbish. It's valueless to me because of what I'm about to receive. Now, this is hard when it comes to practicalities. Some of you are sitting in here with a significant positive net worth. Uh, I, I have, I, I've been at periods of my life where every single paycheck was needed to keep the bank balance above zero and to pay the next set of bills. A lot of us live right there. In an age of financing, we literally own nothing. The bank owns our house and the bank owns our car and the, and the store on ISB owns our TV and our sofa. <laughs> And everything is just payments, payments, payments. And Jesus comes in and he says, I want all your stuff. And he goes, well, technically, Jesus, I don't have any stuff. I just have bills. The good news is he still wants your bills. But for some people, and I've had this conversation with so many people who, who put their faith in Jesus, now they're a follower of Jesus, and they're finding themselves compelled to be generous. And they, go, and they say, I can't be generous. I have nothing. What is 10% of minus 31 <laughs> percent. This is how bad it is for me. And so it can be very hard. I mean, my parents raised me. I remember the first time I earned money, I was eight years old and I've been earning money ever since. My parents made us work and made us earn our own stuff. And my dad taught me 10% off the top goes to the Lord. You put 20% in savings. The rest is yours to spend how you see fit. And then later it was 10%, 20%. Now I want you to reinvest into your business. I was fixing bicycles and then I started mowing grass. He said, you got to have money to reinvest. And so I've been doing this my whole life. It is not easy Writing those checks is not easy. You still feel it. But I've been doing it for so long that it's not impossible. But for some people, they go, I don't even know how I'm going to start doing this. Now, listen, God is not after a number. He's after your heart. He can look right through your negative net worth and see that you are all in on the inside. And then he will begin to lead you, reordering your priorities. As you reallocate your possessions, he will become the one who funds your ministry and mission, who takes care of you. He is a good father. He is a good shepherd. And he is the provider of all things. God doesn't need anything from any of us. Do you guys know this? He owns it all. Even this, even this, it's all his. He's looking for a disposition that says, all that I am and all that I have is at your disposal. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I am a steward of God's stuff and not an owner of my own. Thirdly and lastly, being a disciple of Jesus means reaffirming my purpose. Reaffirming my purpose. This is where we let God tell us why we're here. I made the joke about sequencing your own genome and spending 50 years trying to figure yourself out. I got good news for you. Your search ended today because you are now in the place where King Jesus is gonna tell you who you are and why you're here and what he wants you to do. Are you willing to reaffirm the purpose that he is stating and stop searching for your own? I don't know how many people switched majors in college. Did you do it? Did you do it? I did it. You're like, I'm on this track. And then you get to calculus too. And you're like, not on that track. I'm on this track. You know, we, we have these things that persuade us in different directions all the time, but we're seeking for, what am I going to be? And what am I going to do? And how's this going to work out? And this relationship and that relationship and this city and that job. And we're all looking for meaning and purpose. I got good news for you today. There is one relationship that will define the most important stuff about you. And as a disciple of Jesus, God gets to tell you who you are and why you are here. The question is, will you affirm it? Look at verse 34. I love this. Jesus is so practical with good illustrations. Salt is good. I'm just going to preach that sermon someday. Salt is good. Let's go get French fries. <laughs> the end. That would be a nice short sermon. Salt is good. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Can't be. It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. I don't know if you knew this or not, but salt was put on piles of poo to keep it from fermenting and combusting. Isn't that great? Because the last thing you want around your house is exploding piles of poo. (laughs) He's saying your salt, when it loses its saltiness, is not even good for that. It is literally thrown away. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we need that ears a little bit more because to us, salt, the first thing we think of is French fries and cheap, right? How many times have you thrown away all those little salt packets? You get a thing of salt. It rain, when it rains, it pours. Nah, this thing's salt as a rock, trash. I'll get another one. It's 55 cents. Maybe not with inflation now. I haven't checked the price of salt in a while. But in the ancient Near East, salt, salt was one of the most valuable commodities. Do you know that? One of the most valuable commodities. And for most of human history, salt has been one of the most valuable commodities on the the earth. Do you guys realize how many words we use today come from the word salt? Think about it. Salad, salami, salary. You know, the word salary literally comes from paid in salt, salarium. This is like the power of the value of this thing. Even the phrases we use, they're not worth their salt. Take it with a grain of salt. Back to the salt mines. He's an old salty dog. We, we, it invades our speech. Um, you ever see anybody knock over the salt and they put a little pinch over their shoulder? Or in Dumb and Dumber, the whole salt shaker, right? <laughs> Missed that. Did you know that there was the idea of spilling salt because of its great value was thought to be a curse? And the idea that that was even the devil, that's where that came from, that superstition came from. Maybe you've not seen this before, but in the painting of The Last Supper, which you guys are familiar with, anytime you're ever somewhere and everyone's sitting on one side of the table, something bad's gonna happen. Check it out under Judas's right arm. Zoom in in there, do you see the picture? Ooh, it's a tipped over container of salt. In the ancient Near East, There was endless utility for salt. It was used for everything, but primarily food preservation. You would salt fish and salt beef and salt pork if you weren't a Jew. You would salt all these things to preserve them. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are meant to be that preserving agent that wards off uh, the the, the practice and, and, and the breakdown of everything good. You're supposed to protect and preserve. This is what your role is. And here Jesus is using the same analogy. And if you, don't, if, you, if you don't do what you were made to do, what good are you? And now you know this too, because we don't use salt this way anymore. It's cheap for us. We use it just to flavor our food. But, but imagine for a second, you go home today and your refrigerator has died. And some of you just had a refrigerator die. I can feel the tension in the room. <laughs> Buying a new refrigerator is one of the worst ways to spend $2,000, isn't it? You're like, not what I wanted to do. And why is it that the fridge always dies right after you went grocery shopping? You're like, not only do we need a new refrigerator, but I've just lost $150 worth of groceries. For the fridge, you replace it. How many of you, though, have ever taken that old fridge out of the kitchen and, and, and you just thought, I, I love this fridge. This is my favorite fridge. So many memories, you gave it a hug. You know what? I'm just gonna roll it into the living room and I'm gonna put books in it because I love this fridge. No, you don't do that. You take the doors off of it, you push it out by the road. Within six hours, some scrapper has taken it and it's gone forever, right? And you never give it a second thought. Why? Because the value of the refrigerator is only tied to how well it can keep your food cold. Can I get amen? Jesus is saying to disciples, 
What you do is what makes you worth something. Don't be a disciple if you're not gonna function as one. To follow Jesus is to reaffirm your purpose. I am here for a reason. And it's not to do what I feel like, whatever I want, whatever makes me feel happy and secure. I belong to another and I work for another and I follow another and I learn from another and I orient my life around another. And he makes all the calls and I wake up every morning and say, yes, sir. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, that's a hard sell. Can you imagine if you go to buy a car this afternoon and you look at the car and you go, what's the price of this car? And they say, how much do you have? You would not buy a car from that person, would you? What do you got? But here's the thing with Jesus. He says, what do you have? I have um, an $87,000 negative net worth. Okay, great, I'll take it. I, I have $2 billion in assets. I want them all. Because Jesus values not what we have to offer him, but who we are. And he wants to walk with us and be with us forever. Now, if you're asking yourself this question, and maybe you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, maybe you got dragged to church on promise of lunch. Maybe you're like, it's so cold outside, I'm walking by and that building looks open. I don't, I don't know why you're here, but here's the reality. You may be asking yourself this question, what could be worth that much? What could be worth reordering all of my priorities to the fact where I don't call the shots. My family doesn't call the shots. My government doesn't call the shots. I have 100% allegiance to King Jesus. What is worth reallocating all of my possessions, seeing them all as no longer mine, but I'm only a steward of them. God, what do you want to do with what you put in my care? It's not mine. Reaffirming my purpose. I am here. Good morning. I am here for you. What, what would be worth going all in? And the reality is it's the best deal of your life. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Can you imagine it? This happened a few years ago in California. A couple was walking their dog and they saw being pushed up by some tree roots near the stump of a tree, an old coffee can, and they cleared away some of the dirt to to pull the can out. And what they found was $10 million worth of gold coins from the 1840s. You're like, that never happens to me. <laughs> Let it happen, Lord. I will help build this building, I promise. Let it happen. That's the feeling that Jesus is tapping into to describe what the value of the kingdom of heaven is. You're cutting across a piece of property. You find a hollow spot under your foot. You move the, to the ground to find a box filled with treasure worth so much more than anything you have. And so you go, I will sell everything I have down to the shirt on my back so that I have enough to be the rightful owner of this dirt and everything it contains. And until that treasure was uncovered, everyone who knew you would say, what is wrong with you? You're going to sell your house to buy a lot? You're going to quit your job to live on this speck of dirt? Oh, it's not like that. You have no idea what's beneath the surface of what I've just purchased. And this is what Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the apostle Paul turned down every bit of righteousness and calling and prestige and opportunity as a Pharisee. He says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as 
rubbish in order that may gain Christ. That word rubbish there, that's the sanctified and sanitized English translation of a cuss word in Greek. You know what the word should be translated as? I can't say it in church. (laughs) And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know this morning, no matter how much you have or how little you have, God wants you. And in exchange for all of you, he wants to give you forgiveness, eternal life, acceptance, significance, righteousness, adoption, power for obedience, comfort, wisdom from God, hope, joy, love, and inner peace. And they can be yours by saying yes to Jesus. When you start comparing what he wants to give you with what he's asking of you, it's the best deal you've ever received. And it's universally offered to every single person. It will cost you everything, but you would never have enough to buy it. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's worth reordering your priorities, brothers and sisters. It's worth reallocating your possessions. It's worth reaffirming your purpose. And so where do you start? What does it mean to be a disciple? It means every day you wake up with this disposition towards Jesus to go, you are the boss. I am the follower. I am the learner. I'm gonna do everything that I know up to this point. I'm gonna keep learning from you and drawing near to you through your word, in prayer, by your Holy Spirit. I'm gonna be a part of your body. I'm going to walk as one who is 100% committed. All my stuff is yours. All my actions, all my decisions, all my desires, I give them to you. And here's all he's asking for you to do. It's very simple. It's really simple. Nothing is more simple than this. Here's the, here's what he, the directions from Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And as you step out to do that, watch the power of my Holy Spirit infusing you and making you able to carry out those very two things. There's not a law you will break and there is not a part of your identity that you will not fulfill and a part of your purpose you will not affirm when you just set out every day to obey those two commandments. So that's what it means to be a disciple. To become a disciple means we create an environment where people who aren't doing that all the way are still allowed to play ball. That's what we're doing. It's funny, I don't know why this is, but when we get into church environments, we suddenly create these minimum entry requirements and then we just judge people that fail to meet them. And you can do one of two things. You can lower them so that more people can fit in and you have no standards and that happens. Maybe you've been in a church like that. Or you can cast out everyone underneath of them and the rest of us just fake it. Those are your options. But the reality is, is that a community that's committed to being and becoming disciples of Jesus recognize that not everyone is equidistant from Jesus, but if we're making movement in his direction, we celebrate that and we're in this learning thing and this obeying thing together. Do you guys know how many areas of my life were not fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus? How many things had me locked down through shame or fear I lacked freedom from, I wouldn't confess and deal with? Do you know how long God has just been bearing with me to help me as I learn to every single day become a disciple of Jesus and say yes to him. It hasn't been quick. Some of you are like, I know you. It's not done yet. (laughs) But we're in this together. I mean, we're doing this with our children. We have a 12, 10, seven, and five-year-old. They're all at different levels. They're all at different growth areas. They're all different personalities. And we are trying to train them up in the way that they should go. And they're not, I mean, they're not there. And so what do we do? We love them. 
and we welcome them and they're ours. And this is the environment we're trying to create. In the same way that we give our children room to be five and to be 10 and to have a bad day and to disobey, we do the same thing with each other, that we're in this together. And as long as we're all showing allegiance to Jesus and learning from him, we can make that happen. And we know, we know that this is God's heart. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is what it means to become disciples. Now, lastly, make disciples. We're called to make disciples. Uh, I am admittedly terrible at, this, at the close of the sale. Uh, I, I, I didn't grow up Baptist. I grew up Reformed and nearly fatalist. And so my ideology and my salvation uh, doctrine was that God's gonna save everybody he wants. And so at some point it'll just happen. I also grew up in the church. And so I li- literally knew the gospel from the time I was able to read and gave my life in sequence to Jesus. As an eight-year-old, I was baptized. As a 13-year-old, I I had this encounter with God. By 18, I was on the fence and God pulled me back. And I I really started getting serious about following him when I was late teenager, early 20s. And so I had this kind of like slow process. And I've always been terrible at saying, choose you this day who you will serve. I've got people around me who've been patient and kind. But listen, I know that I know that I know that in the room this size with this many people, there are people here right now who have not bowed their knee to Jesus, who the Holy Spirit is working on and in to say, that is a good deal. And I just don't know if I'm ready. And I wanna tell you, it is our job to be really upfront with the expectations. Jesus was, and we ought to do the same thing. This is gonna cost you everything. But we, brothers and sisters, ought to be the people who are making disciples by saying, it is so worth it. I wouldn't have it any other way. That old life leads to death and destruction. And this is where true life is. I know that because I've been walking it long enough and there is not a human on the planet that I would say, I understand it's a hard choice. (laughs) No, it's not. The best thing you can do with your life is to become a disciple of Jesus, to learn from him, take his yoke upon you. For his load is easy and his burden is light. And as we do this, this is God's plan. We don't need to be upfront with what it's gonna cost you, but God's gonna create for himself a people who are sold out all in, who've counted the cost, who don't give up and who are effective. And this means he will fulfill his plan to multiply on the earth. Do you know that? That's what this has been about all all the time. To Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. To Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply, multiply, multiply. I'm gonna make a people for myself of all nations, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Bigger, bigger, bigger. Speak truth in love to one another. Growing up into Christ, there is a growth that's supposed to happen. And if we're doing this, if we're sold out, I guarantee you, there is a broken and lost world out there, disillusioned by the bait and switch tactics of the enemy who are broken and lost, need something to believe in and give their lives to. And his name is Jesus. And if we're willing to live like he's called us to and, and be bold about what that looks like and invite other people into it, we will see revival in our generation. I guarantee it. The question is, will we take him at his word? And will we come to offer this reality to every other person and let them know how much God loves them, died to save them, wants to transform them, and is worthy of it all? I'm reminded of this, the story of um, the little boy on the starfish. You ever heard the story? A little boy walking down the beach and it was all these starfish that had washed up on the ocean, thousands of them as far as you could see. 
And he's on the beach and he's grabbing a little starfish and he's throwing them in, back in the water, throwing them back in, throwing them back in, throwing them back in. And a well-meaning adult recognizes he's wasting his time. And he says to the little boy, do you know that doing this is not gonna make a difference? And the little boy looks up and he says, it made a difference to that one. That's all I'm asking you to recognize is that if you are in the kingdom of heaven, it's because somebody else came and put you back in there and it made a difference. Well, we have the same missionary heart of God to make a difference. And as we consider what it looks like to be a growing and multiplying church, we need to take this commitment to discipleship of Jesus and the offer of salvation as discipleship to the world. And I guarantee you, we will see growth. And as we multiply, we will see this grow and grow and grow and grow. Did you know that when you tear the arm off of a starfish, it grows another arm? Did you guys know this? This is what it's gonna feel like when we're in that new big building and we're at two services and it's full and we're gonna send some new staff members and some new leaders, the new preacher that you like better than me, he's gonna go, some of the worship leaders, a bunch of money and the whole place is gonna thin out and we're gonna start a new church somewhere else and it's gonna feel like tearing the arm off. But it's gonna grow back every time. Did you know that there are some species of starfish though that if you tear off an arm, that that arm grows a new starfish? And this is what the church of Jesus is meant to be. And this is what we're aiming towards, it's multiplication. And that life only happens, that miracle only happens because of the DNA of how God has wired the church. And that is founded upon discipleship. And so if you're here this morning and you've never committed to, not pray to prayer, not ask God to do something for you, not said, God, will you save me, but I still need to be the boss of my life. That doesn't count, that doesn't work. Today is your day to put your trust in Jesus, to say, I am all in. I've counted the cost. I'm ready for that great exchange. And then to wake up every day to say, I am a follower, an adherent, a learner, a disciple of the true king of the universe. And then to bring that impulse to make disciples of others every single day. If you're ready to do that, I wanna lead you in a prayer. And I really, I want that to be the reaffirmation of every single one of us every single day. Can I get an amen? So God, on behalf of each of us in this room, Lord, we commit ourselves to following you. We believe you, who you say you are. We trust in you. You have proven your love for us, that you would die in our place, your power to save as you were resurrected, conquered the grave, your commitment to our to our birth and our rebirth through this age of the Holy Spirit and the church. God, we believe that you have a place for us at your table and a purpose for us on this planet. And we, we express our allegiance to you, our creator and king. We put our trust in you. We take our cues from you. We follow you. God, we wanna be your disciples. And so will you do for us and in us what is humanly impossible? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, lead us by your voice, strengthen us to obey, help us to understand, become our teacher and leader. And with all of our eyes closed, if you're here for the first time, or this is the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like that, and you meant it from your heart, I wanna ask you just real quick, to clip your hand up to say, this is me, I'm in, I'm making this decision today. Would you do that? Would you stick your hand up real quick for me? Awesome, excellent, beautiful. God, I thank you for my friends 
who have received this beautiful gift from your hand. Lord, your word says that when a sinner is found, when a son or daughter comes home, there's a celebration in heaven. And God, thank you that we can celebrate that as well. Help us to be a place where we can all make our way towards Jesus as becoming disciples and put it in our hearts to bring this good news to those outside of the walls of this church who do not know it. God, we love you and we thank you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' mighty name. Can we give God thanks for the work he's doing in people's hearts this morning? I saw multiple hands going up saying they want to be followers of him. Our our prayer teams are here. If that's you, I just want to encourage you to, to, to let them lead you in a prayer and to help them to give you next steps to take. We're going to close with a song and then we are going to go out because the miracle that happens in here every single week is from God and is life transforming. Do you know it? That's why we are always going to make room for more people. Amen. But God's strategy is to empower and send us to where people are not drawing near to bring this good news to them. And so that is what God is doing. And I want to pray that God does that through his spirit in each of us as well.